This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit LizBruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hard times don't create heroes. It is during the hard times when the hero within us is revealed. That quote absolutely describes my guest today, a true hero among us. Hello everyone and welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. My guest today fought for our country as an elite army ranger and nearly paid the ultimate price. In 2012, he stepped onto an IED, severely injuring his right hand and arm, and both of his legs had to be amputated. And yet, he calls those injuries his finest hour. I'm honored to introduce retired U.S. Army Master Sergeant Cedric King. And Cedric, let me first say thank you for serving our country and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Liz. It's a pleasure. It's great to talk to you, especially because of what's going on in our world. Thank you so much. Indeed. Why do you call that day, July 25th, when you were blown up, your finest hour, your greatest gift? It's kind of like when you were in school. You, you go all year and at the end of the year, you take your exams. And I felt like this wasn't the end of my life, but I felt like that was the, the testing time. I really wanted to know, and everyone wants to know, are they going to have what it takes when it really counts? You know, we can all watch movies and we can see the hero and the hero comes through, but that's the character we're watching in the screen. We all want to know, is that something that we possess? And sure enough, I wanted to know too. Now, I didn't step on uh, an IED and you know, nearly lose my life to see if I had what it takes, but it was sure good to know that when things did happen, I was prepared. By the grace of God, I was prepared. As we go on, I'm curious to know, because I have read your book, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit, but what do you remember about the moments after you were blown up, as you're lying there? You know what? I, I think back to that moment right now. I close my eyes because I'm, I'm picturing that moment in my, in my mind. Mm. I'm laying on my back. This bomb had just exploded. There is a smell of like, of like the closest thing I can describe is gunpowder or if you've ever been on a gun range or, or have ever been around fireworks, there's that smell in the air of, of something just exploded. Smoky. The guys that are around are all screaming to call for the medic. I'm laying on my back and I, I felt like I just got the wind knocked out of me, you know? And I'm trying to get back up. It's almost like I, I, if you've ever been roller skating and falling down, you try to get back up. But when you try to get back up with roller skates or with ice skates, the floor is so slippery that you just can't get to your feet. The moment you try to get stability and try and get some balance, you fall back over because because of the skates. In this particular case, it wasn't skates. It was my legs had actually been been severed. And me not even thinking that that's even a possibility, I continue to try to stand back up again and again and again and again. Until somebody comes over and says, hey, just stay down. Which forces me to look down when he goes and grabs his tourniquets. He goes and reaches for the tourniquet in the pocket and he doesn't go to my head or my arms or my hands or anything like that. He goes down to my legs. It's forces me to look down. And I see a pair of boots that look like 
the shoelaces and the leather were all like, it was like somebody put them in a grinder. It was just pieces of my boots everywhere. My socks, shoelaces, it is disgusting. It's not a pretty sight, you know? I, I can't even imagine, Cedric. Eight days later, you wake up and you find yourself in Walter Reed Memorial Center and you were actually put into a medically induced coma. And when you wake up, your wife is there, yeah. your mother's there, and then your wife tells you that they had to amputate both of your legs. Yeah. How do you begin to process that? I saw these two medals, this purple heart and this bronze star. These two medals were right by the bedside. Already? They were right by your bedside? Yeah. Normally, when you're in theater, you actually are given the award if you're conscious. But since I was unconscious, I was in a coma, my medals were still given to me, but they were given to me uh, on that side, not knowing if I would even make it or not. But the general, uh, General Huggins and Sergeant Major Lambert, they made sure that I had my medals before I went to the major European hospital. I woke up to see that those medals were right there on the counter. I'm looking at them and I know that I had done something. But I, I for some reason, as, as an optimist, I always thought that, that you know, I would be patched up. I, I, I thought that everything was going to be okay, you know. I didn't know that, that things could get worse. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. Yes, my wife and my mom are at the edge of the bed for so long, it didn't even occur to me to ask. Like, I look at the bed sheet. And for all the listeners, tonight when you get under the covers and you take a look at where your legs are and you take a look where your ankles will probably are and where your feet are, this was something that I had never seen before because there was not a signature of legs or ankles or any of that stuff. It was just a flat sheet. I knew where my thighs were. I knew where my knee was. But I was like, hey, where's the rest of it? And my wife looks at me kind of strange. She's like, what do you mean, where's the rest of it? She looks at my mom. My mom looks at her and they both start to try to explain to me what happened. And even now, while I tell you that, it still doesn't, and this has been almost nine years, it still doesn't even sound real. When I explain to you, I still feel like that that's, it's not real. You know, there's no way that happened. I know that you said in your book that you had times where you wished you'd just died that day when you stepped on that bomb. And during your time at Walter Reed, the physical pain, the depression did push you at times to the brink of death, even contemplating suicide. And yet at the same time, Cedric, you kept fighting. Where did that determination and that resilience come from? If you've ever made a, uh, you ever made a dish or have you ever been cooking and you get halfway into finishing the pie or the cake or whatever it is and you finally put it in the oven and everything is going right right you turn on the lights and you start to see that whatever you were cooking is not turning out the way you thought it would be so you make a decision to toss it out it's not because it's not edible you can eat it but it's not the way you thought it was going to be it's so different than the way you thought it would be. You had plans that it was going to be like this. It was going to taste like this. And people were going to see it. And were like, oh, it tastes so good. But when you see the way that it's turning out, you feel like, man, let's just start all over again. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of guys and gals, 
that are going through this suicide epidemic, they feel. Life isn't turning out the way I thought it was going to turn out. Let's just start all over and hopefully life will be better on the next go around. I, I could not do that. I had, I had kids. I had daughters. I had a wife. I had a family I was responsible for. And for me to quit just because things ain't going right for me, that's selfish. For me to just say, hey, look, I want my life to be like like I want it to be. It's supposed to be perfect. And, and, and I'll make a decision to quit on my life, not really understanding that it's their life too. If I check out, then guess what? I'm harming them. More, more than I'm harming me, I'm harming them. I'm possibly passing down things to them generationally that they don't deserve. So, hey, you know what? Yeah, it's tough. Let's go ahead and keep going. And I don't want to be preachy, but I really know that, you know, growing up, hearing all of the things in the Bible, all the stories, Job in particular, it wasn't in me to quit because I knew that God hadn't forgotten about me. I felt it. I didn't know it. I didn't know it. I thought he had forsaken me, but I felt like he hadn't forgotten about me. It was just something on the inside that says, I got you. Relax. It sucks right now, but I promise I will, I will make it up to you. This was your third deployment. You had done a tour in Iraq. You did two tours in Afghanistan. You call Afghanistan sort of the wild, wild west because it's so dangerous. And I, I, I'm just curious, did it ever cross your mind that you could be severely injured, let alone die, by doing the work that you did? Every time service members raise their right hand and swear an oath to defend that flag that's right behind me, we all know that that flag could be the very flag that could be draped over you. We all understand that because we say it. We say it. We're prepared to give my life in the defense of this country. We're prepared to do that. It's an oath that we swear. But you never feel like it's going to be you. It's almost like, you you know, we see that people have cancer every day, but we never think it's going to be us. You never think that it's going to be you. Why did you go into the Army? This is just me being transparent. I didn't think I was smart enough to go to college. I thought college had so much to do with intellect because where I come from, all the smart kids, they were pushed toward college. All the kids that were getting A's and B's, they were going to, to North Carolina and in, 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 uh, NC State and East Carolina. All these colleges, they were going to the big institutions. And that people that were making C's and D's, they weren't pushed toward college because it looked like that they were the ones that would you know, flunk out or be a waste of time. When in actuality, college had nothing to do with intellect. It has more to do with who you are in life the same way. But when you're in underserved communities, sometimes it's just less painstaking to send smart kids to college. It's physically more, more demanding to work with a C and D student to try and get them to college. It requires more effort. It requires vision and constant hope and constant. It's a it's changing people's lives around and it's probably more work. It's probably more. It's just it comes down to it's more work to take a C and D student and send them to college than an A and B student. It's just honest. It's honest. In many respects, though, the military became your college in life and in education because you learned a lot about yourself being in the military. My plan was to go to to the military for four years, get my own college money because I knew that my mom, she was a single parent. She didn't have the money to send me to college and me waste 
money. So I said, you know what, if I'm going to waste money, if I'm going to not be focused, at least I'll do it on my own dime. So I ended up going to the military. And when I got there, it was like I could finally be the honor student and be the honor student, not because I knew how to you know, spit out the Pythagorean theorem or win the spelling bee. It was all I had to do was these four things. Right place, right time, right uniform, right attitude. If you could do those four things in the military, you're the National Honor Society member. You are the dean's list. If you just applied a little bit of effort to everything that you do, you're going to go to the top. And within a couple of months, I was like being singled out like, hey, this guy right here did a great job. Uh, he had the best boots or he had his uniform looking great, you know. And I was like, wow, that was pretty easy to do. Easy for you. <laughs> I, I'm like, man, all I got to do is just iron my clothes and keep my hair cut and, and try hard and I can be exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. Those four things. And so let me just share with people how exceptional you were, because four time best ranger competition competitor, you jump out of airplanes, you traverse mountains and swamps. I mean, you're doing all these things successfully and you you distinguish yourself. You graduate from several of the distinguished schools in the army. Ultimately, as we heard, you got the bronze star, the purple star, the merit is service medal. I mean, all of these things from being in the army. This is where you truly began to excel. And for anybody out there that's listening to this, that feel like that they've been marginalized, you don't have to go to the army to, to get this revelation, but you do need to apply effort in whatever you do. Give it all that you got, not on everything, but on something. Preferably, it'd be on your dreams. And for me, it was once I got a taste of feeling like I was exceptional It's something, it just took over everything. I wanted to be exceptional in this and that and this and go here and do that. I wanted to be part of the 1%. I felt like that, that that's where I belong. Once I got a taste of feeling like I'm one of the few, nothing else would do. I wanted to be exceptional in everything, but I never felt that way before though. And that's such an amazing feeling and to know that that came from that experience. But I also think probably some of that was fed into by your mom. And you've talked about your mom in your book and saying, you mentioned a moment ago that you were an only child. You was raised by a single mom and yeah. that you felt you were poor, but she said you were rich. Yeah. So how, did, how did her influence help you back then? And how does it help you today? You know, uh, my mom would tell me it was just her and me. We were living in a trailer in the poorest county in North Carolina. Maybe she made, I don't know, $20,000 a year for years, for years. Uh, we were poor, but she was. she would tell me how rich we were. And it's almost like in the Bible, it talks about, let the weak say that I am strong. It's not that the poor are lying, saying they're rich, but they are saying what they intend to be. And she and she made it very clear. We're not going to be rich then. We're rich now. It's for the person that's on a sick bed or has COVID. I'm not going to be healed. I'm not going to be feeling good then. I, I'm going to feel good now. I'm going to say it. And she taught me that when you speak a thing, when you use this mouth of yours, you create things. 
You create things that are bad and you create things that are good. And some people say, well, well, if I am, if I'm telling people that I'm wealthy and I'm not, then I'd be lying. No, you're not lying. You are affirming what the good Lord has already said about you. You are actually telling the truth. In spite of your circumstances, you are truly saying your truth. Now, it may not be your reality, but if you say it long enough, it will be. It will be your reality. And a lot of things have become your reality. You did get that college degree. You are now an author of a book. You are a runner. You're a motivational speaker. So many things to talk about. But let's just start with the running for just a moment here, because you have completed the New York City Marathon twice. You're a five-time Boston Marathon finisher on your specially designed running blades. And you're also going to do Boston in the fall this year. You're going to be back here in Boston. We're so happy about that. And you told me once that you have this particular fondness for the firehouse at mile 17. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> All right. So listen, uh, I'm going to just pan over. I hope I don't mess up. But those are all, that's my, that's my gear. I'm getting ready to go work out today. That's my gear down there. But the medals above that Ali picture are all the medals that you talked about and so many more. Uh, it's probably about 60 medals over there. And these medals I've gotten since I've been, since I've been injured. Doing challenges and, and running races. And that firehouse at mile 17 in Boston, maybe it's somewhere in Newton, that was a very defining moment for me. I, I didn't have, I couldn't go anymore. There was a tent. And I don't know if you've ever been, if any of the listeners have ever run the Boston Marathon, but they have medical tents all along from Hopkinton all the way to, to, to Boylston Street. There's medical tents every four or five miles. But when you get to Newton, there is one. And in Newton, the, the medical tent, it, it looked like it was so palatial in there. It, it felt so palatial. <laughs> I go in there, it had cots, had blankets, it had cold fluids. I was like, God, we could just stay here. And that's the way we feel like in life sometimes. Life is good. Why get back out there and keep moving? Why? It's good right here. I could have easily said at mile 17, I got to mile 17 and I, and I did all I could, but I couldn't go anymore. No one would call me a dirtbag for making it to mile 17, 21 months after you lost both your legs. They call you a hero. But my guy, the guy that's running with me, he said, hey, listen, we could stay here, but let me just ask you one question. Can you put one foot in front of the other? Not to get to the finish line, not to get to Boylston Street, but can you put your left foot in front of your right foot? No pun intended. Can you, can you take one step? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, well, look, let's just get to the street and you make one step. Don't die here in the tent. Get out there and take one step. And if you feel like you can take one step, we'll sit down and we'll get out of here. <laughs> So we get to the, we get back out to, out of the tent, which is a miracle because I wanted to stay in there so bad. We get out to the tent, we get out to the street, and there's runners going. You know, it's starting to get late in the day, and uh, and I take one step. He said, "Okay, all right, now, can you take two steps?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, of course I can take two steps." He said, "All right, look, you see that phone pole up there?" He said, "Can you make it to that?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Let's get to the phone pole and let's sit back down again." I said, "All right, cool." And we kept doing this again and again and again until we get to heartbreak. And at the foot of heartbreak, he says, that is the last hard heel that you have. 
If you can get to the top of that, it's going to be downhill from there. And once you see a Sitco sign, that's when you know you're going to be close. I said, all right, all right, cool. <laughs> I get to midway of heartbreak and it's just excruciating. It's just like I cannot go anymore. Um, but then we go back to taking one step and two steps. And sometimes if you're feeling like right now, if you're listening to this, if you're in a situation where you feel like you can't even get to December, you know, it ain't about getting to December. It ain't about getting to Christmas. It's not about getting to five years from now. It's at those times, can you just get to lunch? Can you just get to break time? Don't worry about then. Worry about now. It had everything to do with living life in this moment. Don't worry about next week. Who cares? Next week isn't important. When things get really tough, focus on can you get to the pillow tonight? If you can make it to the pillow tonight, you won. You won. Let tomorrow take care of itself. The problem is we feel like I felt. I got to get all the way to Boylston. There's no way. I'm in mile 17, 18. I can't do eight more miles. You don't have to do eight more miles. You got to do one more step. Take a break right there. Such good advice. You've done the half Ironman triathlon. You are now training for the full Ironman, which is going to take place in Panama City in November. You're going to do it as a hand cyclist. This is going to be your third attempt, right? My third attempt. I failed. Uh, I, I say I failed. And most people would say, well, you know, you failed to finish. No. no. <laughs> what I did was I found out where I was going wrong at, and it was an education experience. Yeah. Failures are, are the best school you can go to. I learned that I needed better equipment. I learned that when I get in the pool, I have to be able to swim for two hours and seven minutes to do two and a half miles. That's where I have to stay in the pool. Like today, I got to go to the pool and do 80 minutes. And nobody's going to give me a medal when I come out of the pool. And matter of fact, they're going to be waiting for me to get out of the pool so they can do uh, water aerobics. <laughs> That's not going to be somebody handing you a medal and patting you on the back during these training seasons. I see all the people that run in Boston during January, February, March, April to run in April under normal conditions. And in Boston, it's 20 degrees below zero or something crazy with the wind chill. There's no way that you can get to doing these marathons without training when nobody's watching. You got to be able to put the hard work in when nobody's watching and when nobody's patting you on the back. That's how you get to the winner's circle. Mm -hmm. That's just what the military taught me, you know. You are also a motivational speaker now, and that's something you actually have been dreaming of for many, many years. And you have written your first book, The Making Point, which is really the story of your journey. What yeah. do you hope people who read it will learn? I wrote this book to let people know when it feels like you're about to break, that is, the, that is your greatest moment. Never think that when things are at their worst, that you are not right there on the cusp of your magical moment. Now, you being on the, on the breaking point, it may last a day. It may last two days. You might be at the breaking point for a year, for years. But whatever the case may be, you're at this breaking point because the breaking point has everything to do with where you're getting ready to be. You don't get toughened up day after day after day for nothing. You get toughened up 
because there is a reward for it. They beat you for 62 days in ranger school. There's my ranger school photo right behind me. You get toughened up for 62 days of sleep deprivation and food deprivation. You lose 30 pounds in ranger school. You get beaten to a pulp. You live out on the land for two months. And the day that you graduate is the first day of the rest of your career. Every door opens for you after that point. People know that you've been battle tested. And more importantly, you know that you've been battle tested. There's no education like self-education. That is truth. I know your days are filled with so much gratitude in spite of everything you've been through. And you've had some really extraordinary things happen. The Gary Sinise Foundation built you and your family a beautiful home that was smart and allowed you to be able to move around into closets and bathrooms and cook. And you were on Family Feud with Steve (laughs) Harvey. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing things. Okay, we started our conversation with a quote. And when you and I were first talking about having this conversation today, we discovered that we both love quotes. And if this was your idea that we were going to share three favorite quotes. So I've already shared one. So you have to share one now. All right. I wrote it down. It's my go. It's my turn. The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. Warren Buffett. Ooh. And I believe that that's like that with everything in life. Uh, For me and for so many of us, if you don't go to the gym today, all right, you don't feel it. You don't go to the gym tomorrow, okay, all right. But if you continue to do that, you won't be able to go to the gym consistently. So whatever you want to do consistently, you got to do a little bit at a time. You ain't got to go to the gym and spend eight hours, but go there for 10 minutes. Turn it into a habit first, then it'd be something you can't stop doing. Yeah, as I like to say to people, just take that first step. Just just do one thing. That first step is so powerful. Just like we talked about coming out of that medical tent. Just take one. Okay, here's my second quote. All right. Henry David Thoreau. Oh, I know. You know you what I'm going where I think you're right, going. Here we go. Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you imagine. <sighs> That's a good one, isn't it? I love that quote. I actually have that one. So you stole one. I did not steal it. You can't steal it. Okay. (laughs) Your turn for another one. One more. I'm going to give you a Bible verse. It's not a quote. It's a verse. I think it's 1 Corinthians 12 and 9. In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Mm. In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. That's one of the verses that actually helped me get through this. There were days that... I knew for a fact I did not have it. But that verse came to me and let me know that that is when God is at his most powerful, is when I am at my weakest. Mm. When I don't feel like I have it anymore, that is when I think that, and and I've seen God has been the most powerful in my life. When I didn't have anything. When I get to the finish line at Boylston, (laughs) there's nothing left. There's nothing left, nothing. And I can remember all the people that were there the first time that I did it. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Martin Richard. We ran for the Martin Richard Foundation. And I stopped at, at where Martin was standing. There was, a, a, there was like a little memorial there for him. 
and I just burst into tears. And I'm not even a crier. I just became overwhelmed with emotion. And there were so many people that were saying, man, if that dude can get down and and sob because he made it and did for this sacrifice of this young boy and her family, then what am I making excuses about, you know? I have nothing to complain about. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, Martin Richards was the young boy who was killed at the Boston Marathon bombing back in how many years ago now? It's been so many years. In 2013, so almost eight years, wow. Exactly. All right, I've shared this quote with listeners before, but I think it bears repeating given that I'm speaking with you today. And it's from my mom. The goal of living is to be able to absorb all of the pain of life and lose none of the joy. Oh, I love that quote, Kylie. My mom's a pretty wise woman. <laughs> love that quote. You know how hard it is to be able to smile sometimes? Or to be able to appreciate the difficulty sometimes? And yet that's what you do, Cedric. That is exactly what you do. All right, you get the last quote. Faith is an oasis that cannot be reached by the caravan of thinking. It means this. If you're at a place where you're required to believe, you cannot approach it from not from logic. It's not going to be logical. If you're wondering, how in the world am I going to make it as a single parent for the next 18 years this child grows up? And I'm a single parent on one job and no child support. How in the world is that supposed to work? You cannot get to that place thinking logically. You just have to believe. You must believe in whatever it is that you need to do in life. You're not going to get there thinking that, well, I'm going to go get two jobs and then I'm going to see if I can apply for a business. That's all well and good, but you're going to have to believe. And honestly, the, the people that believe in life, you can't stop them. You can't stop people that believe, that, that have a knowing that they are going to come out on top. Doesn't matter how big I am, doesn't matter how small I am, not how fast, not how rich, not how poor. You cannot stop the person that is, that is totally sold that they're going to come out on top. Well, I encourage everyone to get your book, The Making Point. And I have a special link in our show notes. So it's very easy for people just to go to the show notes and click on the link and get your book. And I also want to say that if you're an event planner or you have an organization you belong to and you're looking for a speaker, I'll tell you what, Cedric's the guy to go to. And you can find him very easily on his website, which is cedrickkingspeaker.com. Again, that's cedrickkingspeaker.com. And Cedric, you have shown us with your courage that we can all rise above our trials and still live our best life. And I want to thank you again for your service and for sharing your story, your beliefs with us today. Liz, thank you so much. And hey, listen, let me say this. I've done a lot of interviews and I will say this. I can't think of a better interviewer than you so far. And I've done a lot of interviews, hundreds, maybe thousands in the last eight years. You pull it out of me, you know, you pull it out of me. I wish we had more time. You really do. You have a way of, of extracting things out. You ever see Super Soul Sunday where Oprah just pulls it out of people? That's what you have. You have that, that ability to just make me say what I normally wouldn't say. So you got a gift. It's a gift. You really do. You are very kind and thank you for that. And again, thank you for joining me today. And I want to thank everybody who's tuning in and listening. 
And I really encourage you to become a subscriber, a regular listener, because my goal is to share stories like Cedric's with everyone so that we can all be inspired to live our best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.